I'm Adam Rappaport, and this is the Bon Appetit Foodcast. All right, this week we called up Allison Roman to talk Passover, the ultimate Seder menu. Um, Passover begins tonight, Wednesday, April 8th, and we cover everything from chopped liver to matzah brai. And then we are airing a conversation that basically editor Sarah John Pell had with author Peter Miller back at the studio about dishwashing. Uh, it's a topic of Miller's latest book. Yes, you can write an entire book about dishwashing. Uh, and it turns out that's something quite relevant right now, given the many dishes all of us are doing. All right, here's Allison Roman. Allison Roman, welcome back to the BA Foodcast. Oh, thank you for having me. How are you and where are you? Um, honestly, today I would say I'm not great. Um, today I would I would give a minus if we're doing like a binary plus minus. How do you feel today? Today's like definitely not a plus. I'm up in Hudson, New York with our friends Lauren and Emil, which was supposed to be like a, a very short one to two week sort of sabbatical from the city. And now I live here. So... <laughs> Yeah, I think this is the week. So we're we're um, about six days out from the first night of Passover, uh, mm-hmm. which is April eighth. We're on uh, on the second uh, of April right now. Um, I feel like this is the week where it's really setting in for everybody. Like, oh man, this is going to be a long haul. Yes, we are we are settling in for the long haul. And I think at first it was sort of like a you know last week of senior year vibe, where you're like, we don't have you know <laughs> we don't have anything to do. We're kind of like we're here, but we're not, and it's fun and new and exciting. And then from then it becomes your reality and you wake up with a sort of like Bill Murray Groundhog Day vibe and uh yeah <laughs> right so it can we, get we dark. actually we put up a big uh, bed sheet the other night me Marlon and Simone and we actually watched Groundhog Day we did too um, it was it actually like oh we my watched God. we watched Contagion and Groundhog Day we're trying to like <laughs> we're trying to watch the worst version of this existence to make ourselves feel better about what we're actually living uh, I'm definitely not going to show my kid <laughs> Contagion, but I'm glad you guys watched it. Yeah, it was good. Uh, all right, up. so let's talk Passover. W- will you guys do a little Seder next week? We are absolutely going to do a Seder next week. Yeah, I mean, we are pretty good in this pod about, you know, making every night like a theme night or at least five out of the seven nights a week. Um, like tonight's this night and tonight's that night. But we are very much looking forward to Passover because it is something that we all do every year anyway, not necessarily together, but um, it's like a part of our yearly lives and something we really look forward to. So this year, I mean, it will obviously be different because there'll be three of us, but we're already in talks with a few different groups of friends who kind of want to do this Zoom style setup of a Seder, which you know, it's like, who's going to be on mute? Who's not going to be on mute? Because that can get really cacophonous. But yeah, we are definitely doing a Seder. All right. I will consider myself possibly invited. Oh, uh, yeah. But for I mean, today. We'll send you the link. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. All right. So for today, I want to do the ultimate Passover menu and go course by course. And we can both chime in and opine. Oh, and I maybe love it. we disagree. Maybe we agree. Who uh, knows? Okay. Cocktail hour, soup, fish course, main course. You can throw in a side or two. Oh, oh dessert. Can I? Okay. <laughs> oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Dessert and then the day after. Great. I love it. I love this is also I just will say, going on the record, you are my favorite person to play this game with. <laughs> I, so. yeah, hopefully I'm your only person to play <laughs> Ultimate Passover menu. Well, you know, uh, any right, sort I'm, of, you know, hot take game. I'm gonna start with okay, cocktail hour. I will be serving uh, my best ever chopped liver, and the reason I call it that is because it literally is the best chopped liver I've ever had. Um, first of all, I believe firmly the Rappaport House has always 
embraced cocktail hour at Passover. Mm-hmm. Um, a, it's a celebratory moment. B, you're with all your family, so you need a drink or two just to kind of ease into the night. I think that's fair to say. Yes, 1,000%. I feel like any dinner and ever sort of needs that moment where it's like one small snacky thing. People arrive to your place or like, let's just say it's the three people that have been living together for 18 days. You know, we're feeling (laughs) peckish around a certain time and you need something to kind of like begin in in any holiday situation. Yeah. Yeah, this is no different. So chopped liver often gets a bad rap from people who don't like chopped liver and it's understandable. uh, But I think chopped liver can be transcendent. And I think the key for chopped liver being great is for making it not taste so much like chopped liver, or at least yes. chopped chicken livers, literally. Yeah. So what I love to do is three onions, and you caramelize those in chicken fat till they're really caramely brown and jammy. Meanwhile, three hard-boiled eggs. Whoa. Um, so you've got that going on. Yes. Um, I've got a pound of liver. So after I caramelize the onions, I then fry up the livers in that sort of schmaltzy pan where the onions were. One thing I think is key with dealing with chicken livers don't overcook them because that's when they get kind of chalky and yeah. crumbly. Yeah, just pink. Um, so I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to say medium rare, but just make sure not to overdo them. I would Season say medium, them well. I say medium rare is okay to say. Yeah, medium yeah. rareish. That's fine. Okay, mid rare slash mid. And then you know what? I, we talk about my mom a lot about on this podcast, but one thing Maxine always preached was seasoning. And so what we add to the the, the mixer, you can be old school with like a grinder or whatever. I use a Cuisinart. So you've got the eggs in there, chopped hard boiled eggs, caramelized onions, the livers, and then a bit of garlic powder, a bit of mustard powder, paprika, and then a healthy dollop of prepared horseradish. Wow. Okay. That is yes. that is an involved and, dip. And you blend it all together. Yeah. Is this your mom's recipe? Is this Maxine's recipe? Or is this like an Adam original? I would would say it's adapted from Maxine's recipe. I think I upped, I think I probably added another egg, added some more caramelized onions. Um, I go a little bit more with the horseradish. But it's almost like if you ever, you know, get a good chicken liver mousse in a French restaurant, there's a lot of other flavors going on in there. Maybe they add a little Madeira or something, whatever. But I think that's key because livers can be so strong and kind of metallic and this and that. You want them to be a component, but you don't want them to be the component. Of yeah. The yeah. I mostly agree with you, which I think is the best we can hope for. That's like that's like a, <laughs> like an A minus on the agreement level. But mine is a little less complicated. So I start with the livers. I do those in the skillet first, and then I add, like, I sear those in schmaltz. I've also done melted butter if we're not keeping kosher, which I'm not. Sear them until, I would say medium rare is an accurate description. You want them pink on the inside. And then let those rest to get cool enough to chop. And then, because I don't use a food processor, I feel like chopped liver, if you're going to call it that, you got to chop it by hand. Oh, Um, okay. And then take the livers out of the skillet and then add, I use shallots because I think they're a little bit sweeter than onions. Caramelize those in the chicken fat. And then I add wine. I either add like like a dry white wine or a cooking wine. My recipe when I got tested by the BA Test Kitchen, they added a splash of... Uh, white wine vinegar to sort of deglaze the pan, which I had never done before, but that's I think it's a good idea. Oh, also. now he deglazes. Okay, well, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I use white wine, not white wine vinegar, because I finish with lemon. So I'll do like the like jammy sort of caramelized whiny onions, and then I chop those, and that gets mixed into the livers with lots of salt and lots of cracked pepper, and that's it. And then I'll finish it with parsley and lemon to like spread onto matzah. Okay, so you, yours probably goes a bit chunkier than mine, but yeah, I think flavor-wise. Yeah, I like, I like the Sammy's Romanian, like, have you been there? You've been there. Tell me you have. 
Yeah, long, oh, long time ago. Okay, no, that, that's code for you haven't been. Um, before <laughs> before you guys started posting about it on Instagram, yeah, I went to Sammy's many years ago. It, well, Thank let's you. just say if there was Instagram back then, I'm sure you would have posted about it. But it's so I like their chicken liver because it is like it is chopped liver. I feel like what you're describing, especially if you enter food processor territory, that's like mousse, pate, etc. And I am fair enough firmly in although, the chopped although, camp. Although I will say when it I throw it in a, a food processor just because I'm kind of lazy, I it's more of a pulse situation than an on situation. So it, I, I like it to be chunk smooth slash chunky, kind of like chunky peanut butter. You know, there's some bits in there, but it's also kind of emulsified. Um, so I wait. Well, so I do that and I like to do like, well, this this goes into your next question. Well, sort of wraps up into the what you said. So I don't believe in a fish course. I think a felt of fish is gross. We can get there in a second. But well, let's just I let's do. just go there right now. Okay. Well, I did think you it's gross. did you did you never eat gefilte fish? From the moment I ate it for the first time, I never ate it again. Yes, that's correct. I think you have to eat something to decide you don't like it. I I don't trust people that say they don't like something when they've never had it. I would say that I've probably had it more than five times in my lifetime and never have I had a good experience. So what I do instead is I like to do something like whitefish and make like a whitefish salad. So during cocktail hour, Mm. I'll do like chopped liver and a whitefish something. Both you can serve with vegetables or spread on tomato or whatever. But that's like where I get the fish hit in. Uh, I think that's a good solve. I, yeah, I'm not a big gefilte fish fan. I think people who didn't grow up with Passover and they see gefilte fish in the jar and the weird gelatinous fish stock, and they're like, what are you guys doing? Yeah, I have um, like a very intense food memory of going to my neighbor's house growing up and them just eating it out of the jar as sort of like an after-school snack. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I simply could not. And I, I know that I'm sure that's not like the best version of it, and I'm sure it does exist. I'm not super interested in exploring that, though. The only time I ever got an A-plus on a paper in college, I wrote a piece about my grandmother and gefilte fish. Apparently, back in the 30s, they would make their gefilte fish homemade and they, from carp and whitefish and mullet and everything, and they grind it up. And it's one of those, you know, all-day processes. And then at some point when Manischewitz and stuff started coming out with the bottled gefilte fish, they would run to the store clandestinely and then make, instead of making 30 gefilte fish, they'd only make 15, but then they'd blend in the jarred ones so you couldn't tell wow. which were the homemade and which were the jarred, but so it saved them like half the time. So they kind of did that for a while. So I like that. That's my, that was my ace reporting. Something to think a- about. A- um, <laughs> you, you, have, you have opinions about matzo ball soup. Uh, I think that I, I, would, I would say fairly that matzo ball soup is the star of the Passover Seder. Think yeah, so? it's the reason. It's the reason to cook. The reason to show up. The reason to have the whole event. I think. Give me a couple of tips on a. Let's divide it between the the stock or the broth, and then the matzo well, balls themselves. You and I did what like this was like a thousand years ago. We did like a matzo ball soup for BA, and you you like made me put parsnips in the broth, and I was like essentially kicking and screaming, and was just like, what is this, Adam? And you're like, well, it imparts a certain sweetness, and da da da, and I just, see, like I, I want less sweetness, and so I feel like even the carrots to me is like pushing it. And I admit that it means it, so I do include them in mine, but the parsnip is a bridge too far, and I, I can't abide. Uh, but, wow, and, but yeah. it's, it's still in it. I'm looking at the recipe right now, and it's still in there. I thought 
I, I'm surprised you weren't just like telling me to I shut was, up and just I, say Well, no. I, I hadn't really come into my own at that point. I think that I was like still like afraid of going against the grain. But it was also like you made me talk to, talk to Mitchell Davis and it was like this whole thing. And so I felt like that was really more, less my recipe and more, you know, a collaboration. Wow, I feel bad. Yeah, this recipe was from 2014. Um, your thoughts on v- roasting chicken parts and vegetables or just going in unroasted? Do you have a preference in terms of making a broth? I feel like the the mission of the broth sort of depends on how I would make it. And for something like matzo ball soup, because it is very brothy, um, there's not like a ton else going on other than, the, you know, the matzo ball itself. I want it on the more delicate side. I don't want like deep, dark flavors. So I am mm. a big fan of just everything up from cold in the water. So the chicken, the vegetables, the water, cover, bring up to a simmer, gently so the broth doesn't get cloudy and then straining it from there um you don't want to you like you don't want to simmer too hard for two reasons one because it will make the broth really cloudy and kind of murky looking and two it will Mm -hmm. overcook the chicken so you i almost think of it as like a gentle braise of the chicken at the same time um Mm. not because i always put the chicken back in the soup because if i'm serving it for seder i don't but I will pick the meat and eat it for something else, especially now when we're like, oh, we have one chicken to make to last like two weeks. So we'll repurpose the chicken meat either for the soup that day, if that's all we're having, or if it's part of the Seder for the next day, which we can get to when we talk about the day after. I would I would argue in, in these stay-at-home days that we're living through right now, having that chicken turned into chicken salad is a nice light lunch option. That's what I was going to say. Oh my God, we are yes. so in sync, Adam. All right, I like that. This Do you, never are, you, are you a fan of um? <laughs> are you a fan of celery in your chicken salad? Oh my God, am I? It is the only thing I want in my chicken soup. Um, chicken soup, matzo ball soup, nope. any soup. I I feel like you're. It's like I almost am sort of discovering that like you're either a carrot person or a celery person in the same way you're either a chocolate Ooh. or vanilla. Like I think that if it it's sort of. It reveals more about your taste preferences if you have one of those two things to choose from. And like, I am a celery person through and through. And no better like time to really like make the case than in a Moswell soup, I think. I'm going to add that to our lightning round questionnaire moving forward. I, yeah, I would say if I had to choose between the two, I'm definitely team celery. I, I like carrots, but I, I love celery. I just, I but, love but, the idea know. of like the chaotic neutral, et cetera, quadrant of like, you know, celery, carrot, chocolate, vanilla. Like I'm a celery vanilla across the board and like hold firm in that. You know, that that would actually be a, a really good ice cream flavor. No. You don't think so? <laughs> no, I don't. Carrot, vanilla, cel- carrot, vanilla, yeah. You don't think celery, vanilla? Not like actual pieces of celery in there, but celery flavoring sort of mixed in with the creme anglaise when you're making the ice cream? No? Wow, the face you're why giving me right why now Why don't you Zoom. give it a shot, Adam, and we'll see what happens. Uh, I, I don't, <laughs> don't want to crush your dreams. Now's not the time for negativity, but I'm going to go ahead and say no. Okay, um, help me out here because uh, I'm not a matzo ball soup. I mean, I love matzo ball soup. I just don't make it much um, or ever. Uh, <laughs> give me the one key. What's your one piece of advice to getting matzo balls like the perfect texture doneness what do i gotta do you have to cook them in the water for the appropriate amount of time i I, matzo ball soup mixture i i feel like unlike bread making or pie dough making or biscuit making any of these other sort of like bread or white flour based 
things that you might make where it might call for a quarter cup of water and it might be humid that day. So you add a little less or whatever. To me, a matzo ball soup recipe is not to be messed with. Like you find a good one and you stick to it. You make sure your measurements are correct. And I almost never give you that advice. I feel like I'm sort of a ignore the recipe kind of gal. And I think that a good matzo ball soup with like the correct ratios that has been tested and works should be sort of honored. And I think that most people when they have trouble with matzo balls or they feel dense or like too compact or you know chalky it's because they're not cooked long enough they're they're raw inside well that i mean that's interesting when you're cooking the matzo balls in salted water before you add them to the broth i think it's counterintuitive in the sense that if you overcook meat or something proteins get hard and dense but if you undercook matzo balls that's when they're hard and dense they need to have time to cook all the way through well that it's make like, sense? you're giving me that look again. yeah but it's it's like pie dough right or like anything that when you put it in the oven it's like one thing and then it it bakes and it's fluffy and and delicious and flaky i feel like it's the same okay, thing so I, but for me it's like hydration right you're taking the matzo meal you're adding eggs chicken fat seltzer water etc to hydrate the matzo meal you let it sit so it firms up and hydrates, and then you form it into balls, and then you boil them to hydrate it. Think about a spaghetti strand, right? When it comes out of the package, mm. it's a certain thickness, and then you put it in the salt water, you boil it, you cook it, and it expands, just like a matzo ball should. Just like a matzo like ball analogy. should, baby. Yeah, that's like the title <laughs> of my forthcoming memoir. Um, uh, so you can find Allison's matzo ball soup recipe on bonappetit.com, or you just did one for New York Times cooking that has celery. It's a more celery-forward version of matzo ball soup. Extremely celery-forward, lots of dill, lots of cracked black pepper. Okay, we were talking about my mom earlier, Maxine. Um, you had a brisket recipe yes. uh, this fall. Well, I don't know. You kind of threw Maxine some shade. You explicitly referenced her recipe in a kind of a way I, I did not send Maxine I didn't forward her this article because she's a big fan of yours, and she's always telling me what recipes of yours she's cooking. So I was like, well, I don't think you can ought to see this piece, Maxine. I think the piece – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read from your article about your uh, brisket recipe. As I sampled other briskets from other home kitchens over the years, I realized I was maybe being too hard on grandma because I didn't really – because I couldn't really get behind, well, any brisket, even recipes – hyperlink from this very website pointing out Maxine's <laughs> recipe follow that same ketchupy meatloaf inspired formula how could grandma have known better this was by the way just to be fair you threw your own grandma under the bus also on this piece. Yeah. so so let's talk about this this recipe and what was your approach to it because it is it is delicious and I, I I was very intrigued by it well two things first I want you to know that anytime I'm throwing like an Adam Rappaport recipe under the bus it's an ad. I'm, I'm like throwing the concept and I would never disrespect Maxine this way. And you know that. <laughs> number two, number two, didn't somebody that you know request this recipe or make it herself and love it? Okay. Well, you're actually, well, <laughs> to be fair to be, or to be honest, Maxine was intending on making your brisket recipe for Passover this year. So yeah, so she she emailed me and let me know that she wanted to make it. Uh, and perhaps she will. Maybe we'll, like I said, if we do a Zoom, if you invite her to your Zoom Passover, Would Allison, love that. maybe she'll she'll show you the, the, the brisket. So yeah, so it's called Tangy Brisket with Fennel and Herbs. Can you walk us through this? Because it looks delicious. I love roasted fennel. I love herbs. Hit me with it. Yeah, so again, instead of carrots, I'm using fennel, which I think 
this wasn't really the place for celery necessarily because you do want a little bit of sweetness, which fennel definitely has. But fennel retains its texture in a way that I just find carrots fail at miserably. So that was mm. sort of like the first mm. adjustment because if you're going to cook, I think that like the braising meat where you you braise the meat and then you remove the meat and then you strain the vegetables out of, out of the sauce is kind of obnoxious. And like if you're going to use the vegetables, you should eat them. Um, so I like using stuff like fennel because you get the sweetness and they maintain their texture and, you know, it's like something to eat alongside the brisket. So in this one, so you, you have the brisket, four to five pounds, you sear it off, get it nicely brown on each side, and then you've got the onion, fennel, you have some celery stalks in there for flavor, you've got garlic, thyme, oregano, or marjoram, uh, some distilled white wine vinegar. Oh, white uh, wine vinegar, yeah. That's quarter like... cup, then a quarter cup, low sodium soy sauce or Worcestershire sauce. Um, and that kind of all goes in there together. Yeah. So the main flavor, like the main, like the bulk of the liquid here is white vinegar, which I think when people see, they, they feel like, don't you mean white wine vinegar? But no, I actually mean white vinegar, which is like the Heinz distilled, you know, very acidic and almost has zero flavor. So what I was trying to get at is that you want, I wanted the acidity without like the flavor of lemon or the flavor of vinegar itself, like what we know as like white wine vinegar, red wine vinegar. And I wanted to make something that didn't have that classic flavor profile with like red wine and tomato paste and ketchup and onions. <laughs> um, so this was sort of like just a, a different version of cooking meat in a way that I felt like even I could get behind, which I tend to uh, favor, you know, tastes that are like really acidic, really salty, almost spicy or whatever. So I don't like sweet foods. So this doesn't have yeah, I, any well, of that like I, ketchup. I think that's an interesting point you bring up. I do think, you know, in the last several years, certainly since you were working in, in restaurants way back in the day, just that, you know, as a country, we've embraced much more acidic forward food, whether that's with vinegars or fresh citrus juice, and, and that there's more bite to the food that we're eating. Whereas if you go back to the 50s and 60s, there was a lot of brown sugar and ketchup and all those sort of things in our, whether it was the family ham or the meatloaf or the brisket. Um, and I think in a good way, we've gotten away from that. Yeah, I think that like any recipe that asks you to smother a piece of meat and ketchup and brown sugar, that's going to be an immediate no for me. <laughs> well, do you have, all right, before we move on, do you have thoughts on doneness of brisket? How fall apart do you like it? How, you know, slicing it, those sort of things? Brisket recipes, in, in all red meat recipes like that you're braising, actually, I feel like there is a fear consistently when people have with overcooking meats. And... I think like a long cook, a low and slow roast, a braise are kind of the rare occasions where it's harder to do. It's harder to overcook. And in fact, the worst brisket and the worst short ribs and the worst braised meat I've ever made, it's always been because I undercook it because I'm afraid of going too far. And yeah. in like my own testing processes, like when I moved into my apartment, my oven is like an easy bake oven. It's extremely small and very strange to work with. But I was so afraid that because it was smaller that things would cook faster because it was less, you know, space to circulate heat. <laughs> anyway, and so I would test things and I would pull things sooner and I was just like, damn, these short ribs suck. I think I overcooked them. And then it occurred to me that I actually under was undercooking them. Um, and, you know, thick pieces of meat like that really need a lot of time in the oven at like a low and slow because you want that fat to get really nice and melted. You want the collagen to break down if that's a part of the cut. And that takes a while. So I yeah, think that I think, if you're yeah. if you're worried about like is it done, it should when you poke it, it should almost be like jello. It should be like yeah. quivering. A, a gross Ooh. word to use. <laughs> I do think it yeah, better to err on the side than over than undercooked with, with, with short ribs and brisket. I, I think one it's interesting I learned 
over the years when making Maxine's brisket is, yes, you want it low and slow. Yes, it's better to go to a little long than a little short, but it's also important to have the right size cooking vessel. If you have a, a cooking vessel that's too big, a lot of that liquid will then sort of evaporate and boil away. And then any sort of sweetness or whatever will get kind of burnt or overdone. So it's like, make sure you have that the the piece of meat actually fits relatively snugly in your Dutch oven or your Pyrex or whatnot. Uh, that that yeah. ratio of size of vessel to size of meat cut is that, an important one. That's why I'm more of a fan of like the Dutch oven across the board. I think that when you get into those like long baking dishes, just tenting with foil, A, most of the time I feel like people do a, like a bad job of tenting with foil. And so they're not creating an actual seal in the way that a lid for a Dutch oven will. And so a lot of that moisture is going to escape. Um, and you need that moisture not only to keep things like saucy, but to also make sure that th- like that it's not escaping the piece of meat and evaporating the sauce too quickly. But yeah, um, I think that a Dutch oven across the board is the best, best, best thing for any low and slow long cooked meat. Will you get dressed up for Passover? Well, so I am... So again, I'm at my friend's place and I didn't bring any clothes that would indicate that I care about the way that I look at all ever. And that's because I thought I was going to be here for, like I said, a week and a half to two weeks. And it was going to be like a hunker down period anyway. And I was just like, oh, I'll throw in a couple stretch pants and like my cute sweaters. But I've been wearing my stretch pants and my cute sweaters (laughs) for a very long time now. And so I actually just ordered some clothes on the internet. Because I was like, I have nothing to wear and I'm not going back to the city and I can't live like this anymore. That's cool. So uh, my brother, Uncle Andy, who you know, he uh, – I don't know if it was a joke or not, but um, for Hanukkah this past year, he got me a pair of those super fuzzy, cozy, like – I don't know if you call them sweatpants from Uniqlo, but they look like a shag carpet, you know? Um, Wow. And – I kind of thought it was a joke, and then I put them on, and I was like, these are the best things I've ever worn, <laughs> ever. Yeah. And I literally have been wearing them every day out here on the North Fork, and you can't see because when you're on all these Zoom conference calls, you can only kind of see the waist up. So they don't know that I'm wearing sweatpants all day long in all my meetings. Well, I feel like Zoom needs to get get it together, and we need more of like a full-body camera angle. Full-body Zoom. People, people are wasting some good outfits. I feel like when people do put in the effort, it should be acknowledged. Uh, all right, Allison, you get one side dish at your Passover Seder to go with your brisket. What would you choose? Adam, you know it's got to be like a like a crunchy, tangy salad. That's like that's yes. my go-to. It's got to be. I yeah, feel so like any, got- any cut of, of heavy meat, it doesn't matter what holiday it is or how you're celebrating. But I think that, again, I would probably go to something like celery, fennel, parsley, horseradish, something like really fresh, really herby, really crunchy. Um, that you can eat, you know, scattered on top of your meat or as a side. Question. When you say horseradish, do you mean fresh horseradish grated? Ideally, yeah, but that's sort of that that's a long shot right now. So I would say prepared. Prepared horseradish is fine and I find myself using it when I can't get fresh to grate, but it is a totally different story in that the flavor is a lot more intense and you're also getting added acidity. So I think that where if I were calling for a knob of fresh horseradish to grate over something and then vinegar or lemon juice to season, I would kind of not season it with acid yet until I added the horseradish because that's going to give you a lot to begin with. I think it's a good point about the tangy salad just because with the Passover table, I mean, keep in mind, you've already eaten an entire bowl of matzo ball soup, which is very carby. You probably had a bunch of matzah and chopped liver to start off with. Like, I don't need like the whole farful pudding and all that sort of stuff. Like, no. keeping it a little lighter and leaner for the main course, I like that move a lot. Can we talk dessert at Passover? 
Yeah. Because I'm still scarred from my childhood dessert experiences at Passover. It's like maybe this was just like back in the 70s and 80s, but there it was almost as if the Jews felt we don't deserve dessert. Like dessert <laughs> can't actually be good. Yeah. And my they, my mom, my grandma, they put out like this the worst fruit salad in the history of fruit salads. And then there was always like this weird lemon cake made with matzo meal. No, thank you. And I'm like, no one wants to eat any of this stuff. No. And the notion of making an Allison Roman flourless chocolate cake never occurred to anyone because like, no, no, that would taste too good. Yeah, we would enjoy ourselves That would be un-Jewish of us. Yeah, there is a, a, I would never call it this, but it is in fact a flourless chocolate cake. Meryl Rothstein makes it every year for her Passover. Um, and Julia I don't approve. <laughs> I don't, don't approve. I don't approve. Okay. Passover should be tolerable. It should not be enjoyable. I completely disagree. That is the word. I mean, especially this year, Adam, it's all we have. Jesus. I feel like the idea that we should suffer because, like. It's what we do. It, That's what Jews do. We suffer we and then we kvetch the about what it. What if this is the year the Jews become the most fun? What if we're like, we're, t- we're, we're taking fun. That's our thing now. Jews are fun. <laughs> We're like, re, we're rebranding. It's a rebrand. Um, I think that my whole thing with Passover dessert is that the meal is so long. It is. Oh, my God. It, is, yes. it spans an eternity. And I'm, I rarely have patience for dessert anyway. Like, I feel like when I'm done with my meal, I'm done with my meal. And I, I'm not interested necessarily in, like, sticking around for dessert. Not at a restaurant and not at my house. So, I feel like dessert should be optional. I feel like it's something that you put it out and people are into or not. I think that if you anyone else tells me that you should take matzah and like smear it with chocolate and sprinkle stuff on it, I'm going to freak out because no thank you. <laughs> the way that that makes me feel is that it, it makes it sound like the objective of Passover is to eat as much matzah as possible. Not we're only eating matzah because it's the only bread we can have. So like the idea that you're like, well, let's use matzah in eight of the 10 courses we're having tonight. No, thank you. I don't want. Yeah, it's it. like you would never you would never do that with regular bread on a regular meal. Yeah, like it's like oh, I'm sorry. Is the objective to like consume as much matzah, or are we like what? I don't know. So I say just like eat a bowl of ice cream or like have some pudding. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's funny that you mentioned the length of the meal. The last few years, the last several years, I know we've we've gone over to my mom's house for Passover, and it's usually often during the week, just by the way days fall. And I remember we've always had to leave before dessert. Just because Marlon's got school the next yeah, day. It's like He's one 10, in the 9, morning. 10, 11 years old. <laughs> yeah. And like Andy's girlfriend, Anna Dane, always brings something because she loves to bake and this and that. And we feel so bad. We're like, we got to go. Sorry. Uh, but it's like 945 and it's a Tuesday night. Yeah. Um, got to go. We're out. Uh, okay. So that all sounds delicious. Love love the brisket. Love the, the bright, leafy, herby salad. Um, chopped liver is going to be amazing. Matzo ball soup, obviously. But you know where we are going to have some more matzah, Allison Roman? Do you know? I, I simply do not know what you're going to say next. I truly do not. You do. Matzah oh, bride the next, the next morning. Day, the reason we're having this conversation. Yes. Oh, my God. Okay. So I feel bad because I just I made fun of everyone who wants to eat more matzah. But I actually do because matzah bride is one of my favorite foods. So, all right, we are on different teams here. You're Team Savory. I'm Team Sweet. Talk about your matzah brai and how you grew up eating it and now how you make it and explain it to people who might not have had it before. So my dad uh, grew up making it the savory way. And he, I think, he learned from my grandmother. But she, again, if you read the brisket article, she was not a great cook. So I think my dad took some of his own liberties. But you start with 
onions, you fry them in a skillet with butter until they're, they're I wouldn't say they're caramelized. I would say that they're fried. You want like a frizzled fried onion. They're yeah. not necessarily crispy, but they're not, you know, people get a bee in their bonnet about when you say to caramelize onions and they're like, that's not a real caramelized onion. So I'm going to say they're fried. They're fried onions. And then once that's happening, you take the matzo boards and you soak them in hot water until they're tender basically so like maybe a minute and you kind of got to watch them at this point because you don't want them to be super waterlogged because then the whole thing will turn to mush but you want them to like have structure but be softened then you drain them from the water and then you add them to beaten eggs with lots of salt and pepper and you kind of toss it together like almost like a like you're just coating the boards in the egg and let it sit like a minute or two and and that so that i'm sorry what i'm i'm sorry do you call them matzo boards I call them matzo boards, which is what my dad calls them, and people are shook. And I don't. What do What do you call them? It's a board of matzo. I, I've just I've just called a piece of matzo. I've never heard that before, but that's okay. A board of matzo, but you you break up the matzo board into little pieces before you soak it in the water. No, cause, well, yeah, you into to fit into a bowl or whatever it is that you're putting. Yeah, in. I would say yeah. you break them and up I, into fourths. I, I always say uh, I probably break them up a little more, but it's that feeling of soak it in sort of warm water, but it's it's soggy, but there's still some there's still some crispy parts to the the little shards. Right, and when I started making this without my dad, like when I moved away from home, I was under soaking for a long time, and my matzo bar always turned out dry. So similarly to the matzo oh. ball, like hydration is really important in this dish. So you want to hydrate the matzo board in the water, so that way it also like makes it easier to soak up the egg. So it's less about like the matzo being coated in egg and more about it becoming one, like a, like a bread pudding or something. And then, so you add that to the fried onions and low and slow sort of soft scramble vibe. And then basically you just cook it. So it's like a very wet, wet scramble, but it feels a little bit drier because there's matzo and it's not hundred percent eggs. And from there you serve it with sour cream and or applesauce. Whoa. Yeah. This is wow. So, all right. So, so you're not frying it till it's crispy. I don't fry it till it's crispy. I feel like when you fry it till it's crispy, it's it's a it's a different beast. It's a different texture. Like to me, I grew up with it being like a soft, supple, like it's you know what to me it tastes like? It tastes like stuffing. It tastes like the interior of stuffing. Oh, like a moist stuffing. Fascinating. Yeah. Wow. Okay, but the, but I but then when you just said you might serve it with applesauce that seems like it takes it off team savory then well it's like a latka i think i think my dad served okay. it with sour right. cream and applesauce because that's how we ate like knish and latkas and things like that so it yeah. makes sense to have i would always skip the applesauce personally it's not something that i need with my matzo brai but i think it's like a balanced thing if you want like a touch of applesauce i think that's acceptable now if, if you're doing with a dollop of sour cream do you then also hit it with whatever fresh herbs you have around yeah, you can. I think that's like bougieing it up a bit. I think that Dan Roman, <laughs> Dan Roman would definitely not do that. But um, yeah, chives, chives would be awesome in it. Um, I would even like you know parsley dill. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm sure you and you might have leftover dill from your matzo ball soup the night before. I'm sure that you will because dill is one of those herbs that only comes in large. Like when you buy, yes, right? It, it comes in small and large. You get like a clamshell of eight sprigs or like two sprigs. It's like dill for your fish in, in like the clamshell section of the grocery store, which yeah. should be done away with, but, or you get a bushel of dill and I love dill. I'm like dill's number one fan, but there just are not enough uses where it's not like parsley where you can kind of just throw it into everything. Um, yes. I mean, and believe me, I try, I, I try to 
to put dill in everything, but it doesn't always work. Yeah, we just got a, a bushel yesterday, uh, and I first my first thought was like, what am I going to do with all this dill? Although I will say dill is a, for a quote-unquote tender herb. It does last quite a while in the fridge if you seal it up well in a bag. It does, yeah. Um, and I think that there's like different varieties of dill or like the way that it's grown. It can sometimes, it can sometimes be very feathery and, and a little too delicate, but like a good hearty dill, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, she'll last you. Yeah. She'll last you a long time. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I guess I always just grew up with the most basic matzo rye um, for you listeners at home. Although I, I, I do want to try your version, obviously, Allison. But this one, you just you've you been break saying, up the You've been matzo- saying that for years, by the way, that you can't wait to try my version. This conversation is years old, and you've never tried my version. What, n- well, well, you've never walked me through it. You've just okay. referred to it. So, well. but now you've sold me. You've sold me on it. So, <laughs> but the, for if if you're on Team Sweet, you just break up the matzo boards in a bowl, covering them warm water for a minute, like Allison said, till they're till they're kind of like soaked. I, I wouldn't quite almost soggy, but they still have some crispy elements to them. Uh, beat a couple of eggs, salt and pepper. You mix all that together in a bowl. And then I just fry them up in a like a skillet with oil as if you're making pancakes. And and what I like about them compared to – I always find pancakes to have, be the property of diminishing returns. At, for the average pancake, after a few bites, you're like, okay, it's like this cakey white flour thing. Um, yeah, what's I agree, nice about actually. matzo brai – actually, what's nice about matzo brai <laughs> is that it gets – the the outside gets really crispy. There's all these little shard, shard-like elements that get really crispy in the oil. You flip it over, uh, and if you make them kind of thick enough, the inside will still be a little custardy. And then I think a lot of Jewish folks, they will put it a little like jam with them perhaps or a little sour cream. I grew up putting a little syrup on it, which I know is like the most un-Jewish thing, but it's like you're a kid and you like maple syrup. I kind of love that style, but it's definitely a, a very different approach than yours. But as someone who loves a tender scrambled egg, uh, I'm, I'm intrigued by the Alice and Roman technique. That's what I'm saying. I think, and, and I'm intrigued by yours because I actually feel the same way about most pancakes. Is that like, that's why I'm like a pancake for the table kind of gal where I want only one or two bites and it's not something that I'll ever really spend the time on doing in the mornings. All right, Roman, how about this then? How about you send me a link to the Passover Seder Zoom. We'll zoom in, see Perfect. how it's going up in Hudson. And then the next morning... We'll have dueling matzo brai breakfast together. I love that. That sounds really, really nice. And I promise, I, I am genuinely interested in your version. I'm not, you know, <laughs> like it does sound really good. Were you, I have a question. Were you a log cabin maple syrup child or were you like a Vermont tap situation? Yeah, I would say we were not particular. It was kind of like whatever grocery store brand my mom would come home with, you know, we, you know, we just, we, yeah, we went through it like any kids would. All right, Allison Roman, stay safe up there in Hudson. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So almost every month I write one of these features and the way that it works is we get the proof back in paper and the higher up editors kind of write their comments. Mm-hmm. And I would say that this is the only time where I've gotten a comment that said this blew my mind. Really? Yes, and it had to do with our first point, which is that the world revolves around your soap bowl, which is kind of what I took to be the thesis of your book, How to Wash the Dishes. I agree. And I've also gotten several comments from people who peeked at the early proofs and said, this has changed the way I wash the dishes forever. And immediately after I read it in your book, I went home and tried it. And ever since, I've been doing my dishwashing this way. And I would say that 
washing dishes was not something I ever really thought about. I think I just kind of like inherited it from my parents. Mm -hmm. I did what they did and that was it until I picked up your book Mm -hmm. and realized there could be another way. Mm -hmm. So I want to thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. Um, I think it's like making pie crust or I think it's like many things. I think parents sort of spared their children, you know, as if it was from the past somehow how to wash dishes. And it's true for my kids as well who were 30 years old 30 and 30 you know 29 and 32 and um that they have no uh, particular system it's hard to tell someone how to wash the dishes but if they can read it on their own terms then it seems okay if the reading's not boring mm-hmm. so i would summarize the soap bowl as That it is a brilliant way to not have your water running the entire time that you're washing the dishes Mm -hmm. and to conserve soap. Because I kind of felt like I was going through bottles of soap extremely quickly Mm -hmm. because I would soap the sponge and then I would leave the water running and I would suds the dish and then I would rinse it off. But what is your system? How would you describe it? You're correct. You can't, you know, it's, it's incorrect to just go through a bunch of soap. It's sort of, you know... It's unsustainable mm-hmm. in either a metaphoric way or a literal way. I mean, it shouldn't involve that much soap. And the soap bowl, you know, I use a different soap bowl in the morning when there are different dishes, smaller dishes, tighter dishes. And I use a bigger soap bowl at night, and I'll substitute, as the book will talk about, different soap bowls as you go through. When I'm making a salad, I'll think, I've got to have some plan for this bowl mm-hmm. because it's filled with all the um, leftover salad dressing and you can if you're lucky you can find someone who sops all that up with a piece of bread but you still have this greasy bowl and you still have to make some allowance for it the soap bowl has this funny tradition and I, I can't I don't know where that started but it has this funny tradition and it's true in my family and I true, think true in every family that if you put a bowl of soap and you don't protect it someone will literally put a dirty plate into it oh yeah it's amazing or a half finished cup of coffee with the coffee yes. in the soap bowl yeah. now you're of course back to zero right because the point of the soap bowl is that you're keeping it as like a holy yes grail of clean warmish soapy water and you don't dump things into it you right. use it as your source yes you've backed up to it yes and i feel like when i first started doing it at home my husband was really confused about it and like thought it was really dirty mm-hmm. because he kept dumping stuff into it and mm-hmm. i was like no the point is to keep it clean yes and it's kind of like when people have a two-tiered sink and they can fill up half of the sink with soapy water mm-hmm. and use the other half for rinsing. Right. But this is a cleaner way to do that, I think. Yes. And it means you don't have to have any sort of fancy large sink. Right. I don't use the sink anymore. I really use the bowl. I, it, 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 first of all, just to get the sink clean, it, you know, is this whole task. And you can't pick it up. Um, so I, I just use the bowl for all of it. Yeah. One thing that I wanted to ask you about, which I struggle with, is that now that I have the system, mm-hmm. when people come over I'm to so eat... I'm so proud of you having the system. <laughs> well, it's all thanks to you. Yes. Um, when people come over to eat dinner, mm-hmm. I don't want them 
to mess with my system. Mm-hmm. And the second point of this package is that you should keep the sink clear. Like you shouldn't just dump everything into the sink mm-hmm. as you eat or mm-hmm. as you cook because then you're left with like this pile of dirty dishes. Right. Who knows what's in there? There are fragile things. You have to clear the sink before you even start. Yes. So when my guests offer to clear their dishes and place them in the sink, I truly panic. I have no idea what to no, do. No. Yes. I want them to leave everything where it is and uh-huh. just evacuate my I house. Agree. But what is like the polite way? Don't forget that there are a lot of idiosyncrasies to washing the dishes. And there are, there are people who will, when you go to their house, who will very politely have 10 or 12 different ways of saying to you, no, 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 don't bring the, I will, I'll do the dishes. <laughs> and no one even does the dishes but me or that kind of thing. Or, oh, don't, no, 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 I don't want. I usually say I have a system. Yes, I have a system. <laughs> You know, one of the reasons I really like um, those Swedish dishcloths is that you can clean them. And unlike a sponge, you can clean them perfectly. You can boil them in water and it'll get the bacteria out and it and they're sustainable. And the Swedes are quite serious about the difference of them and that it doesn't represent a Petri dish of a kind of bacteria warm food stuck in it and all of that. Uh, you can get your fingers into a glass without uh, where the sponge can break on you, where the sponge can break the glasses. I mean, mm-hmm. you can get your fingers into it. I still have a scar from once washing it, you know, washing dishes years ago. So do you use a sponge at all at home? I don't use the sponge at all. No. I use the dishcloth. There's a wonderful sort of three-quarter donut-shaped thing that um, was sent to me. Someone said I would love it. and I use that to scrub with. It's, it has heavy bristles to it, kind of brown. Uh, Common Good also now has a um, a little woolen cloth that they sell that you can use to scrub a little bit with, and that the wool is quite, you know, the wool is quite perfect for that. One of the things that I learned from your book that I think is maybe obvious but wasn't obvious to me is that there's a distinction between dish towels and kitchen towels Mm -hmm. and that you need to keep them separate Mm -hmm. because kind of what I do at home which is not recommended is that like I use my towels to like wipe up a mess Mm -hmm. or wring out spinach but it should be that they're dish towels that are like designated only for your dishes Mm -hmm. And then other towels that are like for messes mm-hmm. and that the two shall never meet so that you're not accidentally drying dishes with a dirty towel. Well, you don't want to dry with a dirty towel. I will reach for a dish towel and my wife will, you know, scream out, no, <laughs> because it's one of the ones she loves. And I'm going to take the towel that I went for over to where I'm cooking. Right. And I'm cooking with gas so there's flame and she's right the chances of it browning on a corner or you know burning itself or something else but uh, are good mm-hmm. so she wants me to use the most utilitarian the blue jeans right uh, she doesn't want me to take the linen shirt <laughs> over to the sink yeah and she's correct yeah, you know? I feel like there should be some towels that are designated for clean drying, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and those sh- can be your most beautiful yes. embroidered towels. Yes. And they're, but you know, it really is the towel, really is your scarf. I mean, it's such a lovely thing to bring into your kitchen. This, that's why I wrote about the French, and the Italians, and the Swedes, and the, I mean, the, 
They're beautiful towels from Denmark, from George Jensen has these beautiful dish towels, but I'm not allowed to use any of those over by the sink. Right. Those are strictly for the gentlest of drying, not even drying a, a frying pan. Right, you can't dry cast iron no, with no, a cannot. nice towel. No, It will just stain the towel. No, you cannot. And the towels, once you establish your affection for the towels, then I think your relation to the dishwashing is correct. Right. You know, now... We use these little hooks called clever hooks, which have like a um, a lever system to them, and you can put a towel on it when it's wet, one-handedly, and and you can take it off one-handedly, and it will allow them to dry. A damp towel is the worst possible thing to reach for a pan. Right. It conducts more of the heat. Mm-hmm. So you need some way that they dry. You need some separation of the lovely from the utilitarian, the blue jean from the linen, and and you need them handy. You know, you need them there. So how many towels do you have out working at any one time? And where in your kitchen are they? Yeah, I'll have three, you know, three quite grumpy ones over cooking. <laughs> and I'll have um, four or five or six of them, three, four, say four of them stacked over by the sink where they're they look great, um, and two that are live on the hooks that you can use right away. Dishwashing is the drain, the space, and the dishwater. And you can't keep space, especially when people have come to your house for dinner. You can't keep space if you don't dry all of those things that take up so much room. Right. You just can't. We cooked last night, and um, we made a a soup and so we had some big pots and uh, but they were only needed for a little bit of time if we had left them all there there's just no place you have to use the towel to set yourself free so did you clean them did you clean the pots before you ate or you cleaned the pots you clean them as you go first okay you clean them as you go you're like a part of you becomes like a bartender he needs the strainer immediately even though he just put a pina colada through it he needs it right immediately it might go to a (laughs) martini i mean he needs it immediately and he needs it perfectly clean i do think that my dishwashing efficiency has improved significantly since moving to new york because Mm -hmm. i think that with the constraints of the space i have to be a forward thinker i have to wash the dishes as i go whereas when when i go home to my parents house in the suburbs i just sprawl i never clean anything and at the end of the night i'm left with a huge mess whereas in new york i force myself to clean Mm -hmm. the cutting board Mm-hmm. When it's too dirty to keep working, yes. I can't just move it to the side and go on. Yep. No, I think you're correct. I think that's part of what set dishwashing so back into the past, where it just the dishwasher and the big space in the suburb and all of this took some of the intelligence out of dishwashing. The same thing happens at work. You know, I always say, fill the bowl slowly. And I still claim that it really is a brilliant thing to do. But it's not my brilliance. It's the fact that our hot water heater only gives hot water for 90 seconds because it's this little 
on-demand hot water heater or half on-demand hot water heater. So we have to fill it very slowly. And meanwhile, while it's filling, we're knocking off all of those extra pieces. You're letting the soap bowl fill as you use the hot water in yeah. it to wash so your smaller slowly, things. So slowly, Sarah. Yes. Just so trickle, slowly just that you're dripping. just, you're really, you're just, you're, you're, you know, kind of whistling while you work. You're mm-hmm. so slowly, you're knocking off the little glass that's over here that has a big lip mark on it. You're doing the spoons that are just tying up the corner. You're trying to make, uh, you know, you're all, it's always an act of sort of trying to sanitize where you work. Right. And, you know, when you want to lay out the plates to lay out the plates, you have no place to do it if it's filthy. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking we've been talking a lot about hand washing dishes, but I do want to get into dishwashers. Mm-hmm, good. Because most people, it seems like a lot of people our readers have mm-hmm. them. I truly just got one. It took about a year, I think, for mm-hmm. it to become installed by our landlord. Right. And now I almost refuse to use it because I'm so scared of putting things in it that will break. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of just a dish dishwasher phobic. Mm-hmm. But I want to know what do you think, like, what are your main tenets of using a dishwasher effectively? The only thing I insist on with the dishwasher is that you not put anything that I would say is single in there. No wooden spoon, no colander, no knife, of course. You don't put a knife in because it's not safe inside, but also because it's not good for the knife, not good for the hand. No bowls, no mixing bowls, nothing that is actually you have only one of. Unless you put it in there just to dry for a second. Right. And you can put it in. I put lots of things in it to dry for 20 seconds and then... Um, like just as an extension of your dish Just rack. to get it off the counter, put it in there for 20 seconds. And once it's been upside down in the dishwasher, then you can dry it with the cloth in moments mm-hmm. if you wait the 20 seconds or 30 seconds. Uh, as far as filling the dishwasher, it really is quite wonderful for... The glasses and the silverware and the the different size plates and you I, you know I try to put them in, in in the same order I always rinse them because the dishwasher no matter how brilliant it is is really no matter what they say is really not built to actually scrub things so just rinse it and put them in there I do think that rinsing is something that really divides people it should but <laughs> I, I can't quite understand. I hate to rinse. What? You hate to rinse? <laughs> it just seems besides the point. I just want a you machine you that can should, do it. Should, it that should. should be its task? It should. If, if I learn that it can't, I'll rinse. It can do it. No <laughs> question about it. It's not the getting it off the plate. I would never put a plate covered in food mm-hmm. in the dishwasher. That appalls me. But I don't want to take a sponge to a plate before I put it in the dishwasher. No, I won't take a sponge to okay. it either. But I'll rinse it under warm water. Okay so that the particles that are on it are not on it. Mm-hmm. The grease, right, there's nowhere for the food to go. There's, there's really no, no place for the food to go. disposal in the dishwasher. I mean, it, it doesn't have a giant grinder in there. Mm-hmm. It really just has filters. And everyone has some story of the dishwasher backing up at a holiday. Everyone. Right. Mm-hmm. You look in and it's Christmas and there's the water coming out of your <laughs> kitchen. Everyone has that story. And that's the food. Right. You know, getting stuck in the system. It's the sort of aneurysm created by, <laughs> you know, by your dishwasher. I do think the tip to not put anything of a kind in your dishwasher right. is a great one. And I do think that it applies not only to, like, one-of-a-kind ceramics, but also if you only have one whisk. Yes, When no, you put the whisk. the whisk in the dishwasher, right. no. you end up taking it out and cleaning no, you it. Can't. So the, it whisk is the, the whisk is the true 
tail. Right. I always am like, where is the microplane? Where is the Y yes. peeler? Where is no? None of those can go in. And there, we only have one, so we right. always just end up. Oh, it's in the dishwasher. It's out of commission. Now, if you have your dishwater bowl, right, and it it's be fast, and it's going, doing a your microplane takes a second. Right. A, literally a second. <laughs> doing your whisk, rinsing the whisk, and then suddenly going boom, 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 boom in your bowl. You're done. Your whisk is back. I also believe there are some things that just need to be washed immediately, mm-hmm. like a fine mesh strainer yes where you've rinsed something starchy if you don't yes. wash that immediately no that's, you, you that's the end no you and you yes because now it wants to calcify right no you don't want that if you rinse it immediately and you sort of put it in the dishwasher for 20 seconds and then use one of your good dish towels to dry it you're back in business you're so, trying you're real that's the bartender side where you really are you really are managing your station yes yeah, I like to have someone. Sarah, working. you're going to be so good at this. <laughs> I like to have someone working with me so I can manage them. That's yes. my just give them orders. Yes, good. Um, which is very fun. Great. You do or you don't have a dish rack to where things dry. I used to have a dish rack, and I discovered that that it got so dirty. Hmm. It, it got so sort of slimy. Mm-hmm. It didn't drain anywhere. No, it drained, but it's still. It, it was kind of a petri dish for not being particularly clean. Mm-hmm. So I now use a very porous cloth and put it there, and then put things on put it, things away. and then wash it. Right. And I can be more certain that it will be clean and work. And I'll use the dishwasher all the way up to the point that the meal's almost done for a drain. For a dish drain. So you're using your dishwasher just like a giant dish rack. Giant dish rack for, and but anything that goes in it is only in there for, you know, 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. If you, even the saute pan, if I clean and, uh, if I clean the saute pan right away and I put it in the dishwasher and I wait 20 seconds, then it really is just one turn with the dishcloth to be done mm-hmm. and ready because mm-hmm. it dries itself. I normally put my pans back on the stove to hang out. You and can. sometimes I turn the heat on low. You can. You certainly can do that. Water. But but then the instinct to use the stove is a little bit blunted by all the stuff that's on it. Right. Yes. That's all. This is at the uh, end. Yes. Yes. Oh, when I'm completely done, I'll put them all on the stove and let them sit over there as if that's their. I consider that their, you know, hobby room over there <laughs> where they can all go together and their audio visual room for yeah. the pants where they can all sit around and talk talk about the meal. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I was talking to my mom about dish racks because I have one. I actually have this one that we recommend, which mm-hmm. is the Yamazaki Home. And right. it does get dirty but at the bottom, but I also really enjoy it. It wipes out very easily. Oh, good. And it's very satisfying mm-hmm. to clean it. But my mom was kind of insisting that if if she had a dish rack, none of the dishes would ever get put away. Like the dish rack would just always be full, be full. of dishes, of clean dishes, and they would just stack and stack, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. no one would ever do anything about it. But by just using a dish towel... Mm-hmm. She is forcing my she's, father to put them away. She's because forcing, yeah, she's, she's correct. She's yes. forcing the issue. Now, right. there are a lot of things about dishwashing people just don't talk about. <laughs> and your mom is sort of giving away all the things that she's created, <laughs> you know, all, yeah. of the, all of the prejudices that she has had to deal with over time. How do I get the people in my life to help me? <laughs> Is there anything else, Peter, that you want to, any other wisdom that you want to instill about dishwashing? You know, it changes how you cook. It changes how you feel about it. And it gives you 
uh, an optimism um, as opposed to a pessimism? My favorite thing when I'm having a dinner party is when people come over and I've already cleaned everything I was working yes. with. And yes. I know that all I'll have to do is clean the plates we eat off. Yes. That's the best feeling, yep. <laughs> yes. I think. Yes, I agree. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. <laughs> The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced and edited by Emma Wurtzman, with additional programming help from Carrie Polis and Elise Namine. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to reach out to us about this episode or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.